0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Thomas Halliday, the paleobiologist and best-selling author who is helping us to better understand how the natural world has evolved over the past 500 million years. We'll try our best to fit it in into about 60 minutes. Thomas Halliday is an Associate Research Fellow at the Department of Earth Sciences of the University of Birmingham. His recent book, Other Lands, A World in the Making, has impressed both academics and curious readers alike, while circling the giddy heights of bestseller lists too. The book guides us through a series of ancient landscapes, from the dawn of complex life 500 million years ago up to the birth of humanity, using immersive storytelling and sharp scientific analysis to bring that journey to life. Our host for the discussion is the science writer and broadcaster, Gaia Vince. Here's Gaia and Thomas in conversation.
1: I'm so excited to be talking to Thomas Halliday, who has written a really incredible book. Tell me, first of all, why did you write it? I mean, you're you're sitting there researching at work. Why, Why did you decide you wanted to write a book?
2: Oh, well, for this book in particular, um, one of the things that I sort of find as a mammal paleontologist is that, you know, dinosaurs get all the headlines. And so we sort of sit there thinking, well, there's all of this other amazing part of um, Earth's history and the history of life that just doesn't really get a look in, in at least in the popular sort of imagination. You know, generally people know about the time of the dinosaurs, which they sort of telescope together into this one homogenous period of time. People know about the Ice Age, maybe some people have heard about the Cambrian. An explosion, but there's all sorts of things that, are, that that happened in the hundreds of millions of years either side of um, uh, uh, of these well known periods. So that was one aspect, and then another is that I'm a big fan of nature writing, and um, uh, I quite often sort of like to imagine. I mean, as, as a paleobiologist, what life was like, and for me, that means. Imagining what life was like at the level of the the landscape of the ecosystem, and so that's really what the the book is trying to do, trying to reconstruct these sixteen sites from the last half a billion years of, of Earth history.
1: And it's so successful at doing that. It, it reads like um, almost like a travel book back through time. You really get transported to these landscapes. It's 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 a it's very very visual and. Uh, it's really hard to describe. So, what I would like you to do, actually, is read. I know it's a bit it's a bit different for um, Intelligence Squared to do this, but I'd really love it if you could read a, a very short passage um, from one of your chapters where you where you introduce a gorgon, which is um, not the monster with the snake hair, something different.
2: Yeah. So, this is uh, from a chapter which is set in. Uh, modern day well, well what what would become Niger, but it's um two hundred and fifty three million years before the present. The winds have changed, northerlies blow through a sparse dune field, whipping up ridges and bringing sharp shards of silicate hard and fast through the air. It is difficult to see anything distinctly out on the salt flat. There is no respite, no place in which to hide from the deep red, piercing wind. A female gorgon tries to lift herself from the ground, shaking away the accumulating sand as she takes another step. To resist this ongoing burial is exhausting, but sandstorms are frequent enough that this will not have been the first she has had to endure. Her thick skin, scarred with age, provides some resistance to it, if not absolute protection. The rainy season is due any day now, heralded by the return of the north wind, but, until the sandstorm subsides, there is little to do but wander and wait. Her jaw is swollen, and she is limping. Ever since a flailing blow from a bunostegos she'd been hunting fractured her leg, it has never been the same. The injury is now healed, blood having flooded the broken area, helping the living tissue to knit together quickly, a handy physiological consequence of an active, hot-blooded lifestyle. But the strengthening of the new bone growth has healed as a lump, holding the fracture together from the outside, though weaker than it once was. For a member of the group Gorgonopsia like this, the apex predator at Dusty Maradi, such injuries are occasionally severe, but not uncommon. The swollen jaw, though, is more unusual. Looseness in her long, sharp, left canine might have been the result of a new tooth coming through. Despite having differentiated teeth like mammals, incisors, canines and post-canines, gorgons replace their teeth continuously, more like modern reptiles. Gorgons are active predators and need a functioning pair of upper and lower canines in order to feed. To make sure that this happens, they alternate the replacement of their left and right canines and replace both um, at the same time. However, her right canines are themselves already mid-replacement, so a loose tooth on the left means something else. This is a more pressing development, an accident of cell division. Within her jawbone is an odontoma, a cancerous tumour, pressed up against the root of her canine. The tumour is filled with miniature teeth, and as they develop, they are slowly eroding the nearby root. She shifts her jaw uncomfortably in her lips. The storm will soon be over.
1: I mean, it's so evocative. I think it feels almost like we're watching a nature documentary and it's being described to us, only, of course, this was hundreds of millions of years ago. And the incredible detail that you describe in your book, obviously, you know, you weren't there videoing it and then describing it. Uh, you know, how much of this is guesswork? How much of it is based on uh, new evidence? Tell, tell me about that specific Gorgon passage.
2: Well, yeah, specifically with that Gorgon um uh, so for Marathi itself it's this um sort of wet desert ecosystem where um it's an extremely sort of seasonal um period in earth's history so you've got pangea being this sort of big C shaped continent and the the sort of de- the land and then this enormous sort of C shaped embayment of an ocean and then land to the south means that you get really strong monsoons and so in muradi it's sort of at the end of uh flowing uh, of where the river, the water ends up at so it's a bit like lake eyre in australia today it's this Playa lake which dries up and then refills it doesn't have any exit point um and although we know that uh, the gorgonopsians were present in muradi there's the this uh, passage is inspired by two uh, other fossils that we do have of gorgonopsians from other parts of the world. Um, so we have a gorgon which has um, an odontoma in its jaw, a fossil um, gorgon um, from I think it's in Tanzania, um, and it is the, incredible. And it's the so earliest you, have, so example. you actually
1: have you actually have um, the you have the the remains of a creature that actually suffered well toothache.
2: Yeah. And, and this is tooth cancer, right? It's, it's the, it's, you know, a tumor that is developing, um, that is filled with teeth. And I mean, you can, I'm sure people may have sort of seen images of those occurring in humans. And I think this is the earliest occurrence of, of cancer in, in the fossil record, right? Cancer just being a genetic condition. It's not something that has, uh, evolved over time. It's just what happens when cells divide badly. <laughs> um, and, uh, the, uh, as, to the injury to the leg from *Abunostegos*, which is later explained as being this sort of large cow-sized herbivore, sort of reptilian herbivorous animal. Um, the fractured leg of a Gorgonopsin shows—I uh, uh, think one from South Africa—shows evidence um, that it has re-healed in a way that implies that it had uh, it was warm-blooded like us and sort of had a mammalian physiology. So all through this, everything everything I say is grounded in in something. Uh, it might not be from that particular site. It might be um, inferred from what we know about uh, modern biology and um, you know useful analogs in the present day. Uh, but but there is a source behind everything I say um, that isn't just something that's more impressionistic or you know the, the emotional side of things is obviously sort of my impression of the fossil record and and my sort of personal response to it. But the factual element. Are all grounded in in research.
1: I mean, how, how difficult was it to put yourself into this very, very different world? I mean, we we're talking about Pangaea. I mean, that's uh, everything is different. Everything, even the, the position of the continents, the 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 ocean, the everything, the climate. Mm-hmm. H- how do how did you put yourself in? And and that's the pattern of the book. You know, there are all these different ecosystems, but these different worlds essentially. It's like visiting different planets, which is essentially what you're doing through time.
2: Right. It's uh, trying to, uh, I mean, the, the, the worlds of the past um, are very different and they have different species living there. The, um, I mean, we get to points where the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere is 10 times that of the modern day, right? Um, but the ecosystems still follow not laws exactly. Biology as a subject doesn't really have laws that in the way, same way physics does, but the same sort of patterns emerge over time, oh. and um, so you'll see, uh, you know, rules like um, the proportion of predators in an ecosystem remains sort of relatively constant at about sort of ten percent the level of uh, the number of herbivores, and so on. that is a sort of that's a rule of energy flow through food chains that that sort of is consistent, and so from a biological perspective. The, so it's sort of explaining the the ecological rules that persist, even though an individual ecosystem might be completely um, extinguished. You know, the, all of the places in this book are gone and will never come back. Um, and we can be sort of sad about that, or we can sort of think, well, you know, we we have ecosystems that are around today that are just as wonderful and just as marvelous. It's just that we're used to them because they are the ones that are of our time.
1: And there is a, there is a, a pathos, there's a there's a poignancy to all of that because because yes, you're you're describing worlds and and inhabitants that to them their world is exactly how we see our world today. It will always be like this. It's always been like this, and we can't imagine. Our extinction, or or the extinction of these ecosystems, and yet we are already going through this um, unprecedented, really rapid change. Mm-hmm. When you look back over such such immense timescales as hundreds of millions of years, you know how, how do you get your head around that in order to make sense of it um, for the reader? Because you do make sense of it.
2: So, for the most part, so over the last. Um Oh, it, so it, 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 there are two sides to this. How do I get my head around millions of years? And I think partly that's just exposure through, you know, a decade of research. <laughs> and you just sort of, oh yeah, a million years. That's, that's fine. That's just the units we're working with. It kind of becomes condensed into something. Um But I mean, when we're talking about change and the the rate at which things are happening, in general, even the big mass extinctions happen over a relatively long period of time. I mean, from a human perspective, you know, we're talking about um, thousands or tens of thousands of years for the end Permian mass extinction, which is the the worst um, of all, we paleontologists know it as the Great Dying, when 95% of um, life on Earth went extinct, and that was caused by you know vast volcanic eruptions over an extremely long period in uh, what is now Siberia, uh, which put lava. Um, uh, what we call traps out um, over an area that is equivalent to the size of Australia today, right? So that's a very severe event over a very long period of time that ultimately changed the climate such that a lot went extinct and it was very dramatic. The only time when Life has been really wiped out over an extremely short period of time. Is the end Cretaceous mass extinction, which everyone is kind of familiar with, um, which is when the um, a meteorite struck into the shallow seas off what is now the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, and dinosaurs, apart from birds and a whole swathe of other creatures, went extinct. I
1: think that's skewed our it skewed our sense of extinctions, yeah. hasn't it? Because everyone's obsessed with dinosaurs, as you said earlier, and and that extinction was very sudden. Generally, it has been it has been a lot slower, and that's that's kind of hard to capture as well in a book.
2: Yeah, the 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 push and press of of just uh, ecological change. Um, I mean, when we get things, so when when the Siberian traps erupted, it it put a whole lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So in some senses, it's an analogue. To today, and you got you get similar patterns, uh, um, deoxygenation of the ocean, and um, you know increases in things like acid rain and changes to the climate, and um, so a lot of the effects, although they um, took a long time to get going, are similar. So we can sort of see how the ecosystems um, change over time. I mean, right now we are experiencing the biggest. Uh, increase in carbon dioxide, specifically um, emission in, in 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 history, as far as we could tell, in prehistory. <laughs> right, the 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 second fastest rise was at a, a time at the end of a, an epoch called the Paleocene. So it's a time known as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, and this is a time when uh, the you know the, the poles are forested. It's already quite a warm period in Earth's history. But uh, and while you don't get huge mass extinction at that time, you get Real uh, turnover in species, uh, ecosystems change. We, so that's when you get the origin of what we might think of as modern faunas, the precursors to the modern fauna. Before then, you've, you're in this weird transition.
1: I mean, when we when we think of that time, fifty five thousand uh, million years ago, when we think of that um, that period of time, it it was very different. It was tropical. You know, there were alligators around our coasts. Um, the the tree line, you know, had moved completely differently hippos in london you know it was a very very different time and yet when we look at our carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere now we don't really see much difference you know maybe the olive trees in um britain might have fruit for the first time but it's not we're not seeing that big change because it takes thousands of years yeah, to, the, there's for, the lag. for it to yeah there is this lag and so we don't get the sense of that big change, which you can um, which you can show from the past, because it's yes. it's so much more compressed when we look back. I mean, that's a problem, isn't it?
2: It is. So w- one of the things which I think is a a, a really common misconception in um, communication is when we talk about the error bars of uh, what the temperature change will be by twenty one hundred, for example. Um, the error isn't vertical. It's not in the temperature, right? We can really accurately predict from the carbon dioxide level what temperature we'll eventually get to. The error is horizontal. It's at what point do we get that stabilisation? And so so the curve looks different and then crosses 2100 at a different point. So we are currently predicting um, if we go through uh, the so-called business as usual approach, which basically means that we don't try to do any kind of um, carbon uh, dioxide reduction, um, and we just carry on emitting as we have been. That in 2100, we will have carbon dioxide uh, levels in the atmosphere that are the same as in the Eocene, um, you know, when Antarctica was a, was a rainforest. <laughs> you
1: know. I mean, it's, it's pretty horrifying. I will say that this business as usual is very, very unlikely now because we have yes. made changes. Yes. But even, even with that, you know, um, we could, we could reach four degrees, which is um shocking Mm -hmm. and and it's that commitment isn't it for the centuries after we you know we look up to 2100 but there's that commitment to those centuries after which Mm -hmm. which you see when you look in the past when it's when it has stabilized when when um uh ecosystems have moved and and you do see that very different world um, yeah, it, it's very different. It's difficult to imagine in a generation that because it does take a little bit longer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All of these um, things take time, and there will be local um, effects as well. When we t- people often talk about the um, the permafrost in the Arctic melting, and that. You know, is, is is a risk, but it will be it will it will happen in some areas more than others. When you get little sort of you know divots in the landscape that manage to maintain cold just through the cold air sort of sitting in as a little basin over time, then that will melt less, and so you you you'll get sort of different local effects here and there. Um, I think sort of we don't want to talk about sort of scary runaway tipping points, um, because that's although. Not- Well, yeah, I mean, there there are there are possibly you know a few of those out there, Um, but I I think that what's more important is um, is acting, recognizing that if something, then it's going to be really severe but that if we if we do act we can change it and we know what to do really we have known actually for quite a long time what to do
1: and i think i think one of the things that's quite interesting is obviously when you're looking back through through other lands you're talking about times long before anything resembling us was around almost entirely you know apart from the very beginning um and now there is a species with agency over the climate, agency over biodiversity, over the way that um, uh, the way that we uh, move water around the atmosphere, or where we put forests, and that sort of thing. And it, it it can have that huge effect. I'm I'm wondering when you're writing this, how when when you were writing this, how um, how. How at the front of your mind that that very different time that we're living in now, this Anthropocene, compared to these these um, sort of natural, if you so to I mean um, worlds that we that, that the planet experienced before us and will experience after us.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, it was very much at the front of my mind. Um, there are chapters which are explicitly about topics that are very relevant to this so i mean i can think of the um the oligocene chapter which is set in um a place called tinga in chile and this is um a that's all about the idea of what makes sort of native species and how species move around the world right so right now we can we we have ourselves as a species transported all sorts of creatures into places where they wouldn't naturally be whether that's you know deer into new zealand because we sort of like the idea of sort of all the animals in shakespeare being there or whether it's <laughs> you know accidental ones like uh, um you know uh moving in sort of ballast water of ships from one part of the oceans to another and so on um but in the uh in the oligocene uh South America is this sort of interesting island continent which had evolved. It's a very unique set of uh, mammals in particular, but uh, but fauna in general. Um, and yet you get this uh, influx of um, organisms which appear to be coming from uh, Africa, uh, which is uh, the Atlantic, is about half the width at that time that it is today. But it's still a substantial barrier, and yet uh, the um, all of the monkeys in South America, all of the rodents in South America, are descended from African ancestors that got there across this uh, Atlantic Ocean. And the 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 idea that we, um, what we believe is the is how they got there is that during storms, big the sort of banks of big rivers can uh, have fragments that detach and remain pretty stable and coherent you know even with of trees remaining vertical and uh, these then get washed out into the ocean and so these uh, natural vegetation rafts uh, and what is really most likely to have carried quite a lot of uh, organisms across the ocean from you know the proto- Congo River, or whatever was sort of in in that position at the time.
1: Monkey boats, Thomas. You're talking monkey monkey boats. Monkey boats, yeah. (laughs) Yes. I mean, just call it what it is. It's monkeys on boats. Monkey boats. Yeah.
0: That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news...
1: You talk a lot about the animals, of course, because you know we all love animals from the past. But also about the uh, the flora, um, trees, and uh, one of the most interesting to me always is how is this systemic, um, this systemic way that that the physical. Uh, planet created life and that life created the physical planet and how they interact. And you get this complexity, this um, this, uh, this emergent property of the biosphere, which is kind of greater than the sum of just uh, individual um, plants. And I, I thought it was really interesting um, in one of the chapters, I think it might be the same one as the Gorgon, actually, when you're talking about, um, I think it might be the Devonian, when you're talking about these um, um horsetail plants which which still exist today um and they uh, their roots help erode the rocks and that has an effect on the carbon dioxide level talk us through that because it's I mean it really underpins to me something which um which I don't think people appreciate enough this this continual interaction between life and the physics and chemistry of our planet the geology.
2: Yeah. um, Yeah. Roots are are absolutely fundamental. So um, what what you're talking about is um, what we call weathering of the rocks, and specifically of of, uh, rocks that are high in uh, silicates. And when uh, roots sort of delve into and sort of push apart rocks that are made of silicate, it exposes that to the air. And one of the consequences of this is that it reacts with the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and locks it up as a mineral. And you know, if you're locking up something as a mineral as opposed to, say, a living thing, which is going to die and then decompose and release that carbon dioxide again, it retains it within the rock. And so, I mean, there have been some people that um have advocated for uh using uh plants like bamboo today, which are incredibly fast growing. They're very good at weathering rock when they do grow as a potential Sort of additional solution to um, climate change because the mere act of growing them not only produces you uh, uh, provides you with material that you can turn into fabrics and um, as well as uh, you know as furniture and all sorts of excellent uh, products that we could use, um, but also it actually locks in carbon dioxide uh, as a sort of byproduct. Um, Yeah, and in 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 the uh, Carboniferous period. Um, we had the growth of the first major forests. So there had been plants before on land, there had been a few big trees towards the end of the Devonian, but the Carboniferous is the period where uh, the real sort of uh, plant-dominated world um, emerges. And this huge sort of uh, explosion in organic life, um, the mass of organic life, Completely changed the atmosphere, and we get this uh, huge sort of reduction in carbon dioxide concentration over the course of the uh, of the Carboniferous, to the extent that the trees that really facilitated this, which we call scale trees because of their sort of diamond scale patterned bark, um, they uh, they sort of fundamentally changed the atmosphere towards a climate that couldn't really support the ecosystem they had evolved. To inhabit, so scale trees would grow in you know two feet of water in a hot and humid swamp, and uh, when the world sort of got a bit more arid as a result of this sort of general reduction um, in 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 uh, atmospheric CO two, uh, the swamps sort of dried up and we get what's known as the Carboniferous rainforest collapse, and we sort of move into this very arid world of the Permian, which is where the Gorgon comes in.
1: And that's that's interesting because of course those swamps that's that carbon that was stored in those swamps, we now that's coal. burn ourselves. Yeah. That's coal. And that's what we now burn and we release all of that. Um so it's this cycle, it's the cyclical nature of the last millions of years, which um the the increase in CO two, the reduction of CO two. Um and until recently that was that was a um a cycle which wasn't uh, consciously interrupted in the way that we have from the from the Industrial Revolution. I think it's, um, I think it's so so fascinating. Um, one of the most moving and um, extraordinary parts of the book to me. Um, And I've been to, um, I've been to Gibraltar. So, um, so every, uh, a couple of times um, for the Neanderthals, actually. (laughs) And every time I'm there, I think about this, this, this waterfall, tell us about this waterfall, because, you know, it's just, it's just so it's just too incredible to imagine
2: yeah it's uh people ask me you know if I if I um had a time machine, where would I go and this is really the answer you know forget forget going back to the time of the dinosaurs or seeing the creatures that I've studied myself. I want the spectacle um, and so, so although what, it sounds what, yeah. really
1: dangerous sounds very scary. Oh
2: I think just yeah well, I think we should tell people what it is first <laughs> tell, <laughs> but, yes sorry and, yes, and
1: describe uh, describe this incredible scene.
2: So um Africa is moving northwards. Um, towards Europe, as it has been for millions of years. And at the end of the epoch, which is known as the, um, the Miocene, um, it had moved north to such an extent that it cut off uh, the, um, the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic Ocean. And as it happens, the Mediterranean is in a relatively dry part of the world and the, the rain that falls on it and the rivers that feed it are outweighed by the rate at which water evaporates from the surface. And so once the um, uh, Mediterranean had been cut off from the Atlantic, that means that it slowly begins to evaporate and get lower and lower and saltier and saltier until we end up with this um, kilometres deep uh, salt pan which uh, would have had extraordinary temperatures at the bottom as a result of the sort of pressure-based heating that you get um, when uh, you descend um, and which, you know, today we can see huge... Uh, you know kilometer dick, thick um thick blah, kilometer deep deposits of salt um um of halite salt rock um at the at the bottom of the mediterranean but of course the mediterranean's full now so obviously it refilled at some point point. and the way that it refilled
1: over what time period yeah, thomas it was catastrophic
2: over the o- over, <laughs> over probably about one or two years i mean people argue about exactly how long it took But um, it happened in two phases, we know this. So um, initially you get um, a a strike-slip earthquake. So that's when two plates go um, sort of parallel to one another. And this sort of jolted the land down around what is now the Straits of Gibraltar and opened the gates for um, what was sort of a bit like a weir-like sluice of water as the Atlantic poured into the Western Mediterranean. And... uh, you know, turned the Balearic Islands back into islands and turned uh, Corsica and Sardinia back into islands. But it came up against this barrier, which is the, uh, an area of higher ground or what is now high seabed, um, that is Italy and Sicily and Malta and the, you know, the sea, the shallow seas in between them. And so after the, the Western Mediterranean had filled, um, it then came to the lip of that. And uh, we can see now in the um at the bottom of uh, a steep submarine cliff uh, by what is now syracuse uh, the remnants of a waterfall that was one and a half times the, the height of the angel falls um and much much wider than the niagara falls i mean the biggest waterfall that has ever existed and that is what i would go to go to see
1: <laughs> i mean the spectacle it must have been absolutely Extraordinary. Yeah. Changing a, a dry salt flat suddenly into a completely different world with the like the sound alone must have been you know, unbelievable. You must have been able to hear it for miles.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um the rate at which it's filling, the the eastern Mediterranean Mediterranean's filling at probably a meter a day for the amount of water that's pouring over that. And to just think of the you know, the entire ocean from essentially from Sicily to um the coast of what is now Israel. Um, Just rising up a metre every day is just an incredible um, idea. And for the organisms, and when was
1: this? When did this happen?
2: Uh, This is about uh, about five million years ago, um, at the um, end of the Miocene, the beginning of the Pliocene. Yeah, the whole the whole uh, episode is known as the Zanclean Flood, which is, I think, one of the sort of great names in (laughs) in paleontology and geology.
1: And And it could well have been witnessed by our last common ancestor with the chimpanzee, hanging out there, watching this incredible sea level rise.
2: Yeah, a bit of a trek from. East Africa but you know it's
1: <laughs> you don't know where they went on their monkey boats uh, i mean maybe <laughs> maybe they went on holiday in the med <laughs> i mean looking back in a way is easier to do than looking forward because we have the evidence we can look at the striations in the rock we can look at fossils we the past has already happened what does it tell us about looking forward i mean look five million years forward can you do that
2: you can there there are some ways that you can do that so we can um we can predict to some extent where continents are moving because we we sort of know their current trajectories and understand the mechanisms that drive that tectonic uh, movement
1: so so we can tell like the himalayas are still rising and yeah, I'm India sorry. will
2: continue to sort of plough up um, towards there. You've got the um, Baya California, um, that, which is, you know, the San Andreas Fault is a famous fault that where you've got that strike slip movement. Uh, it will eventually become an island that is separated. I don't think that'll happen in 5 million years. That seems quite short uh, a timescale for that kind of thing. Um, yeah, in 5 million years, that the world will not look substantially different, but there will, there would, um, well, it partly depends, of course, how sea levels rise and uh, to some extent when we're looking forward in time that it entirely depends what we do now right so if if after you know 5 million years is is more than twice the uh, length of time that the genus homo has existed right so predicting what the world will be like at a point that is sort of longer than most species tend to last for uh we, I guess we could think about it in terms of a post-human world, although humans are quite good survivors. We're quite sort of a good generalist. It's it's difficult to see a point, a, a, a way that we actually go extinct. Well, I mean, sense.
1: we've only been but, around for sort of 200,000 mm-hmm. years. So are we good survivors? I mean, compare us to a tortoise or compare us to um, a, a tree. You well, know, we we're we're have, actually
2: we have a lot of traits that um that are, are very suitable for surviving uh mass extinction events the the one thing that is uh probably against us is that we're quite big <laughs> and that's usually a bad sign for organisms of mass extinction events because we need a lot of food and generally take a long time to reproduce and for humans that's certainly true um but we are we are ecological generalists of the the finest order to the extent that we modify the environment to make it within our niche right and I, that will continue to be true through tool use and so on but you know if, if we're not if we're not talking about human extinction though when we're thinking about what happens to humans in the future and um, we should be thinking about actually the suffering of of societies because there's a big difference between you know extinction and everything's fine Right, there's a, there's a graded middle in which things get increasingly bad, and and, and they already are affecting the, the, the least wealthy parts of the world, um, and uh, which have contributed least to the problem. Right, we're, we're in a place where, um, uh, countries like the UK that in- industrialized very early and with um, carbon based fuels, um, have caused the issues that are now affecting places like the islands in the South Pacific and Bangladesh um, while they have not really um yeah contributed much to that problem. So I think we need this sort of level of um anyway, I am I'm I'm sort of taking this on a tangent a little bit from your original question, just because no, I don't I think mean, there's is, a lot we can yes, predict in the past Because, far because future.
1: humans yeah humans are a different animal from other animals we you know we uh we have other needs apart from to be able to eat reproduce and um uh <clears throat> live uh, live long enough for our, our young we 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 have a lot of other needs so we're a bit different but in terms of humans i mean we obviously we evolved at a particular time in a particular place um, and um, in a particular environment, well, mainly in the Paleocene, and just recently been in the Holocene, um, and and our populations grown very great, and our and uh, we've changed the world, and our our cities and other landscapes have been made really very recently in in a few millennia. When you look back on um, the ecosystems of the past. On the eras and the um, the <clears throat> the past eons that we've been through, which of those would be habitable for a time traveling human population now, if it was just to. Um, just to be sort of plopped into a completely different world because some of them were too hot for us to survive or too cold for us to survive or didn't have enough oxygen in the atmosphere or constantly burning.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we would not want to arrive in the middle of a a mass extinction event, I think is fair to say. Um, (laughs) But um, those are the sort of punctuating events that... um, for the most part, the world isn't. There. I, th- I think probably we don't want to go too far back because at some point we're going to lose anything that we can eat. Um, so we, uh, as terrestrial animals, are only really going to have uh, an environment on land realistically about as far back as the uh, as the Carboniferous. Into the Devonian, there'll be fish in the sea, but our, you know the diet's going to be pretty same probably not that healthy for what we <laughs> what we're used to. Um, but from the carboniferous onwards um the that's really when the atmosphere begins to resemble our own anyway so i think uh, any any point after that is survivable somewhere in the world um there will be places where we can survive but that's true of the world today if you put a, if you put people in the middle of the you know the south pole then they're not going to survive without really substantial infrastructure
1: <laughs> yeah Exactly, because they they survive on this human made world, but that human made world didn't exist in the
2: past. Sure. Oh yes. Okay. So yes, if if you just drop us entirely, um, yes, yeah, naked and afraid, into <laughs> <laughs> then we're, we're probably not going to do very well. Even those that are you know skilled at survival, I guess that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's a difficult so, so maybe
1: question. maybe we need to maintain the uh, the environment that we're lucky enough to be born well, into. Absolutely,
2: and 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 that world has uh, it's evolved alongside us. I think people tend to sort of separate the human world and the natural world, whereas you know we are very much a part of it. But that also goes for you know we can have very positive impacts on 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 the environments and on diversity. If you look at um, the the um, pre-columbian management of the amazon rainforest right it's been it's been affected by humans for for thousands and thousands of years um in and a we're way- just
1: discovering so much more yeah. every every year it's so exciting that um well, it's 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 bizarre that we, we go from a position of um, this was all wilderness and had nothing to do with humans rather than assuming everywhere we went was yeah. <laughs> interfered with by humans because that's the evidence from today.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I, I, and the issue then is really actually how do we interfere um, because most of the problems that we are developing are, come from this kind of short-termist interference where we just try and extract something right now and not really think about what's going to happen in a hundred years, in two hundred years, or more.
1: So we need we need to look into the far future, Thomas. I've I, it's such a pleasure talking to you. I, I could talk for ages, but I I can't keep you away from uh, your audience, who also have questions. And goodness me, I must say that the Intelligence Squared audience are not shy. Um, <laughs> question one is. Do we know when sex happened for the first time?
2: Oh, that's a good question. So, uh, the, uh, the the first evidence um, of sex we have is, uh, I, well, I believe, from uh, the Ediacara Hills, which is actually one of the chapters in the book, conveniently, um, where we get this—the pornographic chapter—where <laughs> <laughs> we. Um, there are creatures like, uh, it's, it's called Phoenicia dorothea, which literally means Dorothy's rope, and it's a sort of rope-shaped organism that grew anchored by one end to the sediment in, little, in these groups. And so it's thought that they would have uh, released their um, sperm and eggs, uh, their gametes, at the same time and so fertilize, and then they these drift off and settle somewhere and form this new group, which is, and, and the evidence for this is really based on the clustering of these organisms, which you don't expect if you get um, uh, the sort of asexual uh, branching that a lot of the other organisms at that time show. So whether that's the first um, example of sex that happened is, uh, I, I, I'm not certain. I think it's one of the first ones where we have pretty sort of solid uh evidence sort of based on the demographic changes but by the time we get back that far um everything's pretty soft bodied um so it's really hard to um uh find sites where they're well preserved and we get increasingly sort of distant from the organisms we're familiar with so identifying these um you no, know, very cellular processes, <laughs> very, um, very soft processes. It, it began it gets very, very difficult. I mean, with some, some sites, of course, do preserve soft tissues extremely well, and we call these sort of these sites of exceptional preservation. And uh, several of those uh, are the sort of inspiration for these chapters. Um, uh, and even some like the soon Shale in south Africa where the n- normal rules are completely inverted and you get muscle fiber level preservation of soft tissue and then just the hard tissue is completely dissolved and it's just a, a sort of yeah it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's an odd consequence of the local chemistry and really acidic bottom waters that dissolve these calcium carbonate shells and yet um the um uh, the the way that the mud is formed it's like um it turns the uh the Sort of flesh into a clay that is um, just very well preserved. This elite, um, so yeah, it, it it subverts all of the sort of expectations that you have. You know, as I say, in biology, you have a law, and then something will just break it. You know, we don't we, we don't have those same sort of physics <laughs> rules. There's always something out there.
1: Well, here's a really interesting question because um, this gets to the heart, I guess, of um, of how evolution. Uh, changed the, the landscape. Well, the seascape initially, I suppose. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how animals grew eyes and how those eyes changed how these animals interacted?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So the um, the first eyes that we really have evidence for um, come about several times independently in, in the Cambrian. Um, so just after what has sort of historically been known as the Cambrian Explosion. So, but there's more and more evidence coming about that the Cambrian explosion is not really a huge sort of sudden radiation. It's more an explosion in preservation, right? And so you get this, um, uh, the origin of all sorts of interesting new features. Eyes are one and this hard outer exoskeletons uh, are another. So we're getting creatures that are armoured. And um, what I think is the case, and what has been borne out by a few recent papers is that um, this is really when predators start getting going. We we have the um, the first uh, evidence of food webs that look like the food webs of today, based on sort of demographic analyses of these sites of exceptional preservation, where we've got you know really good idea of you know relative population sizes and so on throughout a, a, a community.
1: Because over these millions and millions of years, although ecosystems have changed and animals and plants have changed. At the heart, the struggle for survival is is remains quite similar.
2: Yeah, and you get these sort of um, almost sort of coded rules, like yellow and black is dangerous, right? That's something which seems to have uh, <laughs> been you know extremely long lived, and we have some preserved coloration of of wasps from the Cretaceous which show this same yellow and black coloration. Um, so, you know, so so the the uh, the same sort of the same sight that makes you suddenly recoil at a, at a picnic is, is, is something that would have uh, made yeah a small dinosaur think twice, you know? <laughs>